0: You are listening to a podcast providing education on how you can spot, report, and prevent trafficking. Through survivor-informed content, our team of survivors, industry experts, and community leaders are committed to increase survivor identification beyond 1% as the first step to ending child sex trafficking in America by 2030. Join us for real facts, real stories, and real ways you can be on watch with us.
1: Hello, my name is Brittany Dunn. I am the COO of Safe House Project, and I am joined today by Christy Wells, my co-host and co-founder of Safe House Project.
0: Thank you. And When Brittany and I began Safe House Project in 2018, it was because we wanted to make a difference in combating trafficking. We all have got to do our part, but to help you understand the national landscape and the importance of really combating trafficking and the impact that you can make, we brought on one of my favorite people, Mitzi Purdue. Mitzi Purdue is a champion in this cause. Her husband was the founder of Purdue Chicken. Her father was the founder of Sheridan Hotel. She is a businesswoman and an activist and an author. She holds degrees from Harvard University and George Washington University. She's the past president of over 40,000-member American agri-women and was one of the U.S. delegates to the United Nations Conference on Women in Nairobi. Mitzi is a syndicated columnist for 22 years, and her weekly environmental columns were distributed to California's capital news newsletters, and later by Scripps Howard News Service to roughly 420 newspapers. She wrote for the Academy of Women's Health, Genetic Engineering, and Biotechnology News. Mitzi is a fierce activist, a fierce leader, and we are just we are so grateful to have you on today. So, Mitzi Purdue, welcome, and thank you for joining us.
2: What a complete joy to be with people who share a common goal, which is doing something about human trafficking, one of the worst scourges in the world. I mean, when you consider the amount of pain, not just for a girl or a boy or a man or a woman, but their families. And I'm thinking at the moment of a conversation I had with a woman whose daughter was trafficked, who told me that she didn't have a single hour of peace during something like four years. So you know it rips apart families as well as as the the people who are trafficked
1: no, you're absolutely right, and I know that this is okay. an issue that many people are wholly unaware of, mainly because it has so many different business models. but when did you really come around to understanding a little bit deeper about what sex trafficking is and what it looks like in america
2: okay, i I have a suspicion that there are a lot of people Maybe not so many who are listening to us right now, but then in the world there are a lot of people who were where I was in April of 2019. In April of 2019, I've not heard the word human trafficking, but it sort of glided by because I, I didn't relate to it in any way. It was just kind of words, and then everything just changed drastically. April 11, 18, I saw a video. And I wish I could show it to you right now, but I'll do my best to describe it. I'm doing this by memory, but I'm gonna guess there are twenty little girls. They were I learned later they were ages like eleven and twelve, and they were being herded onto this island. I was particularly moved by by their faces between infinite sadness and terror. It was just, you know, no little girl should should have to go through that. Well, that started me in a journey to finding more about what human trafficking meant and among the things that I learned and that, you know, I couldn't unsee this, is that it would be very typical for one of those girls to be forced to have sex, toothache or not, just being violated over and over again. I mean, it could be easily 3,000 times in a year. And I'm a grandmother. I've got two granddaughters. And I, I bet people listening to us or watching us, you know, they're young people in their lives and the thought of the amount of suffering that that goes on with human trafficking, I thought, I can't unsee that. I, you know, once I know something about it, I mean, even if it's just a little, given that it's a very, very, very big problem, but even from the little I know, I thought the best use I could use in the years that remain to me is to do everything that, that I could learn about to help stop this horrible thing. Because, I mean, as, as we're recording this right now, it's 2020, this shouldn't be happening in 2020. Human
0: slavery, no, that's got to stop. Yeah, and I appreciate, I think Brittany and I both came from a perspective of, we saw something that we couldn't unsee and we knew that we had to respond. And so we have our way that we responded, but talk about the steps that you took after you had that eye-opening experience in seeing these young girls. Um, You have just become a fierce advocate for supporting this cause. You've got Win This Fight. You are a board member of Safe House Project. But talk about the steps that you took to really start engaging this issue. All
2: right. My story is I'm sitting in the audience, having just watched the foundation video, and I'm thinking, I have to do something about this. As Christy said, you you can't unsee the suffering. And once you know it's there, I mean, as human beings, I feel we're called on to do something about this. And I'm thinking as I'm sitting there in the audience, I'd really like to write a great big check. So, you know, again, I'm bouncing around thinking, who can I cut back on? And then I had an idea. And the idea was the following. I inherited an amazing desk that belonged to a cardinal from the 16th, well, 17th century, early 1600s. It belonged to a de' Medici cardinal because of its history and because of its age. And even its provenance because it, you know, belonged to the co-founder of the Sheraton Hotel Company. You know, I there would probably be a lot of publicity surrounding the sale of this thing. And it could probably raise a lot of money. And I thought, mm, I hate to give it up, but since I can guess what what it might bring. And I could also, I've been told what it costs to rescue a child. It's around 1000 to 2000 And I started thinking, would I like to be part of helping maybe 20, maybe 50 children escape from hell on earth? Or would I rather look at this chest? And I thought, that's not really a question. I would much rather part with this thing that's emotionally important to me but that could raise money for a cause I care about. And Then I began an exploration of, are there other people who feel the same way? And it turns out that there are. In a fairly short order, people began coming to me. I mean, I was certainly hunting for them, but people began coming to me with offers of things like, well, one of the world's largest perfect emeralds there's two. There are two brothers who inherited 12 dinner plates from the year 1820. They belonged to Tsar Alexander II. They were a gift from his father before he became the Tsar. These brothers own 12 of these plates in just the most perfect condition. And that we know of, there are only 14 in the world, and two of them are in a museum in Russia. Not only were they willing to donate them, but they also said that there's a Russian oligarch who wants to buy them. so so <laughs> they're sold you know, there will be cash traveled all over the world drumming up support for a great big auction of mega interesting donations, and the most interesting of all is from Taipei, Taiwan, a man who hates human trafficking. I mean, I think we can take for granted that we all hate it, but but this man is so committed to it that he gave me a 69.7 carat perfect ruby. It's, and, and, and on the off chance that people watching or listening don't know what is, we can call it a 70 carat ruby because 69.7, let's round it off. Seventy. will round it up.
1: We'll <laughs> just round it off. Just a little. All
2: right, a 70 carat ruby. It's a little smaller than a golf ball. And if you look at it, I, I, I once took a course, the colored stones course of the Gemological Institute of America. And you know, this man has handed it to me as a donation. And I look at the thing, and I to the naked eye there, it's perfect. There are no, there are no little cracks or occlusions or anything wrong with it. It's just, it, it's mesmerizing and If I can share a little story of how he happened to give it to me. Well, I was in Taiwan and I'd been invited to probably give six or eight different talks throughout the country of Taiwan. And this gentleman, I guess he had heard about one, it was in the newspapers a fair amount. Well, he invited me to come visit him in his home in Taipei, capital of Taiwan. And I visit him and he takes me to the second floor where he has what I would call it, it's sort of like a tea room, except it's also like a museum. There's some of the most amazing like artifacts, paintings, scrolls, carvings, just beautiful things. And so we're talking, and you know, I'm hoping that he might give me something, and I was hoping for something like maybe a ten thousand dollar gift or something. I mean, that would be huge. But he started talking about how what is widely known, which is that Trafficking is a 150 billion dollar a year industry. 150 billion, and it's controlled by organized crime. The three largest sources of revenue for organized crime are illegal drugs and illegal arms sales. And I'm kind of under the impression. I'd love I'd love you to tell me if 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 I'm right or if not what the figure is. But I think. I think human trafficking is number two right now as a source. Uh, You're nodding, so I guess that's yes. That it's number two as a source for criminal revenue. And they all overlap. I mean, if you're engaged in one, there's a pretty good chance that you're monkeying around in the others as well. Well, this guy said, you know, we were talking about about how organized crime at at the top level, not at the street level, but at the very top level, the kind where we're talking $150 billion dollars that they have no problem shooting people. I mean, they don't want this disrupted. And he said, aren't you afraid of being killed? And I said, I just blurted out. I I didn't even think about it. it. Just the words came out. I said, my age at the time, I said, I'm 78 years old. I believe in this cause. I don't care. Well, the gentleman stood up, walked around like the set of chairs where he was sipping tea and he went to the wall behind the chairs and he pulled aside a curtain and there's a safe and i watched as he's manipulating the dials he opens it up and he reaches in and he pulls out i mean it could have been a paperweight it was so big (laughs) and he walked around and he gave it to me and he said i want you to have it." And, and then actually, he explained what he wanted. Any anybody who makes a donation, they get to say when when the thing sells at the giant auction, which COVID nineteen has interrupted. But when there is this giant auction, the donor gets to say which anti-trafficking organization it goes to. And of course, I dearly hope, as a board member, that loads and loads comes in in the way of the Safe House Project. I mean, I'd love that.
0: I think that's fantastic. And I love how you have used your background and your experience and your connections and just your own individual talent to elevate this issue in the in everybody's mind. And you have shown that there is an incredible way to to engage regardless of who you are and, and, and again, what those skill sets are. And I think it's it's so important for people to see, you know, it's, they can see what are the talents in my hands and how do I leverage these to make a difference? And I think you are just such a prime example of somebody who is who has done that and said, I refuse to let this exist. What talents do I have? How can I leverage them to make a difference? And how can I inspire other people to do the same? And so it's just such a joy to see how you continually knit those, those connections together to make a difference
2: how before I heard a lecture on human trafficking, the words just sort of, I don't know, floated by. They didn't They didn't have meaning. And with my TED talk, I'd love to get other people who were in the situation I was a year and a half ago where human trafficking, you just don't get how awful it is and how it's worthy of us doing everything we possibly can to stop the thing. And I didn't swear, right?
0: but you did not
1: (laughs) no I love it and I think that's beautiful just the way that you want to empower the industry but then also extend that and make sure that people really feel like they can be part of the solution because it's not we don't want to just know hard information we all want to know how we can be part of truly bringing about meaningful change we all are, are acutely
2: aware of the fact that you rescue a girl but if she doesn't have a place to go she'll probably go right back to it. And as a matter of fact, could I invite one of you to interrupt me for a minute and and give the statistics on how likely she is to go back?
0: It's important for people to understand that once somebody is rescued or once somebody has gotten an opportunity to be pulled out of life and sex trafficking without a safe place to go once they're rescued, 80% end up back in traffickers' hands and end up being re-victimized. So right now, globally, we're looking at 1% victim identification on average. And 80% of that 1% is re-victimized. So that means we're only effectively supporting 20% of 1%. And restorative care is such a huge piece of this. And I think this is what you were pointing to. Restorative care and having an opportunity to heal from the trauma that they've endured is such an important piece nationwide when we began, there were only 100 beds in restorative care homes across America for children. And that was part of the genesis behind our organization with a twofold mission of increasing victim identification and increasing the number of beds in safe house programs. So we helped add 32 beds to that 100 our first year through funding new or expanding safe houses. And this year, with the goal of um, adding 160 beds, we've gotten a bunch of those open up to this point. But to your point, the funding has to come in to make sure that that, that final uh, step is able to be taken to get those doors open. But but yes, without restorative care for these children to be able to learn life skills and, and have medical care and education and, and a safe, loving, home-like environment where they are stable enough to be able to go forward on their own healing journey, then they do. They end up back being re-victimized. Come up with
2: the evil equation of human trafficking and it goes like this extraordinary profits 150 billion a year and almost no deterrence the odds of somebody who's trafficking doing jail time are way less than one in a hundred so the evil equation is extreme profits no deterrence equals metastasizing human trafficking i mean it grows and grows and grows so how can you interrupt the evil equation? How can you interrupt the profits? I'd love for us to copy something that Microsoft did. For years, decades, Microsoft would have extraordinary losses from pirating. People would simply pirate their computer programs, their software. For, for Microsoft, this was just a nightmare. And they they tried different ways to do something about it. and. Basically, when that stop one person, you know, two more would pop up. It was a whack-a-mole situation until they hired this company with with super high-grade, brilliant people just to focus on this. And they, they did locate, like, the 20 families that were raking off most of the money because they would, you know, in an industrial grade, they'd copy these programs and then distribute them to middlemen and then... All the way down to what would be the equivalent if it were trafficking to street level traffickers what they did was they got the top people they found out where they banked now if you know where laundered or hot money is going and you can absolutely prove it you've got fantastic leverage on the bank because you know the bank doesn't want the reputational damage so if you can prove it to them you know they, they can't wait to to shut it down and the idea is you freeze and seize the counterfeiters who are going after Microsoft pretty much stopped because you seized the money. What do, why does a counterfeiter counterfeit? They want money. Why does a trafficker traffic money? So if you could get to the people at that top of the pyramid of the $150 billion, and you could use the same model of freezing and seizing, you could make a huge dent in human trafficking but the people who do this tend to be retired military or retired FBI or you know people who who have long-term experience in this and they're retired and they're available but you need a budget for it so what if there were an org what if a foundation I my ideal would be that one big foundation would take this on that would like to play the role of Microsoft or Pfizer or any of these others to fund the 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 ultra high tech ways of seizing money from the people at the top, you know, make it less profitable for them.
0: I love that. And I think that there's such a powerful position there on how corporate America can engage in the fight against sex trafficking and Bank of America to identify what those financial patterns are in order to identify, just like you would for fraud, how to identify where there's a trafficking situation. And I think there's a way for all of those companies to take it one step further to make a significant impact in this issue. And that's why Brittany and I have always said, you know, trafficking doesn't exist in a vacuum. It intersects with and depends on legal industry in order to thrive. And so if we treat it like it operates in a vacuum, then we think that it doesn't impact us. But. It does impact the financial revenue of the legal industry, and it does harm those. And so it's um, opening those doors for corporations to feel like they have a place in the fight. They have the ability to make a difference.
1: Well, and the other thing is you're not just going to be tackling the trafficking industry by that model. You're really going after guns and drugs as well by the nature of that interconnectivity, as we kind of mentioned earlier. And so really, if we were able to systematically address that from the top down, we would really be alleviating the burden on everyone and how we address these issues within our communities. And so there is a huge opportunity, I think, here for people to unite under the common vision of wanting to eradicate trafficking. Let's just figure out a way to go after it from the top and really... Affect meaningful change that will live on for generations.
0: Yeah, every one of these individuals that has the opportunity to be rescued and restored out of trafficking is one more life that is saved and that is equipped to move forward in a powerful way. So, Mitzi, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for using your strengths for service and for um, using your voice for the voiceless and really empowering an entire movement to barrel forward. You are a hero, you are a world changer, and we are just so blessed to have you on the Safe House Project board and to um, have you as a friend. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for lending your voice to this cause. It
2: was pure joy being part of this thank you. Let me leave you with a quote from William
0: Wilberforce, who once said, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. Each of us has had a defining moment in our life where we're faced with a choice to either engage or look away. We hope you'll subscribe to our podcast for future content about how you can make a difference in ending trafficking. Thank you for listening.